The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, Lynn Cooper talks about fall fashions for ladies and the first of a two-part discussion of accessible voting coming up in ACB Reports for October 2006. Fall is both in the air and on the shelves of your favorite fashion emporiums. Here's Lynn Cooper with a description of what's out there for ladies this fall. Mike, we're going to go over the uh, top 10 major trends in women's wear for fall and winter. But before I begin, let me kind of capsulize this season um, with the theme of edgy and tailored. And what we're seeing in women's wear is a bit more austere. We're bidding farewell to overly feminine, foofy, if you will, designs and uh, silhouettes in clothing as well as accessories. No more soft and fluffy? Not necessarily. That's exactly right. You're always going to see that for evening and black tie and gowns and cocktail dresses and what have you. But for the most part, day wear is pretty simple. It's really pared down. The top ten trends are listed in random order. And the first is dresses. A lot of dresses being shown, Mike. We're seeing various styles of dresses, wrap dresses in knit and uh, cotton and wool. We're seeing shirt dresses, and that is made to look like a man's shirt only as a dress, button-down. Sweater dresses are really big. The dress silhouette from mini to ankle length is really a big look. And it's kind of nice because it's easy to wear, and it's sort of a no-brainer. Uh, Number two are leggings. These are huge again. Now, they are the leggings that we remember that uh, end at the ankle, and they are stretch. And we are seeing black leggings under big sweaters with long jackets. We're seeing them under dresses even. Short mini skirts are what the young girls are doing with denim minis. They're to be worn really with boots or ankle boots, which we're going to refer to as booties. Now, this is a cautionary uh, note on leggings. They're tricky for those of us whose legs may not be young and thin. So this is, once again, what I'm giving. As always, we are giving what's off of the runway on the pages of the magazine so that uh, you have the information, but we really have to be cautious when we're uh, taking these looks right out of the magazine and putting them in our wardrobe. So that's one maybe best reserved for the um, younger, thinner gals, but that is very, very, very big. Thirdly, we have white shirts. Now, that's not a hard one to wear. These are white shirts in crisp white cotton or a blend, certainly, for ease and handling. All silhouettes, we've got everything from the menswear look, where you can actually raid, which is really an economical way to get this look, is to go to a men's store in the uh, sale pile and to uh, get actually a men's shirt. These are everything from tailored to boxier, looser silhouette with French cuffs, button cuffs, the whole shebang. They're worn with everything from jeans to a skirt for day to evening wear, even a satin skirt. They're very, very big and very easy to wear, but we have to be careful when we launder them because they will start fading. Launder if possible. Then number four in our hit list is capes, and that is C-A-P-E-S. Capes 
are really, really big. Those are an alternative to coats, really, and they're a fashionable alternative because with a front opening, they are not going to be terribly warm. So they're not you know, really practical for those 10 below days. Uh, they are usually in a thick wool, dark colors, charcoal, black, a front opening with either a button or a big toggle in front, and uh, they're also shown in shorter novelty styles, you know, just below the uh, shoulder, maybe between the shoulder and the elbow, in sweater, knits, and what have you. But for the most part, the very formal, elegant uh, cape is shown in a dark color with a front opening, and that's really very chic with a pair of slacks and boots or booties. Then our fifth trend on our hit list are sweaters and sweater knits. Very, very big. And once again, this is not a shock, um, you know, that there would be sweater knits shown for fall and, and, and winter, as my niece would say, kind of a duh. They're big and bulky. They're like our Aunt Bertha knit them. They're very, very big, bulky sweater knits in dresses. We're seeing them even in coats and even handbags, if you can believe it. Imagine that somebody takes a real big cable net Irish knit sweater and put a little leather on top and some handles and designers, really very big fancy schmancy designers are showing sweater knit handbags. Not the most practical. Those are definitely fashion forward. Then we have red. Red is a big color, very, very big color this year in uh, accents. We're seeing red dresses, too. We're seeing red shoes. Tricky, but uh, they're being done and, of course, follows right on up to our lips in that bright red 1940s Come Kiss Me lipstick shades. Uh, the colors this year, along with red being the most uh, forward, are black, and ivory and gray. Gray's really, really big. Seventh uh, in the hit list here, menswear looks. So we are seeing really what look to be like men's suits in thick, tweedy fabrics, uh, pattern very much probably made out of menswear cloth, in some cases with a three-piece uh, look with a vest, cuffed, wide-leg pants, that's very, very big. Hats, the whole shebang, the menswear look is very big. And going back to the white shirts and what have you, those are fun. And, and, and if you can do it, uh, go into the menswear department and have some fun. You're going to pay a lot less than in women's wear. Number eight is our lean pants silhouette. And this is especially in jeans. Now, this is my guess, and I may be proven wrong, but I doubt it here. My guess is that this is going to be so forward and so tough for so many to wear that it probably will not be carrying over. I'd be very surprised if it carried over to next year. And this is a very, very skin-hugging, almost like they're spray-painted on you, jean silhouette, ankle-hugging. Most jeans, as you know, probably have a little bit of a flare, a little bit of room at the ankle to get the boots under, the shoes under, uh, what have you. But this is, imagine, a very tight jean that goes all the way down to your ankle and hugs it. It's really almost difficult to get your, your foot through. It's kind of a very 60s Jean Seberg French look, but it is tricky to wear if we have any weight. Once again, we are giving you the knowledge right out of magazines, but this is not a look that I would suggest anyone wear who has any extra uh, pounds in, in one's hips or thighs. It's fun for, uh, for young, but that silhouette 
is also being shown in thinner slacks, not necessarily skin tight, but those thin silhouette slacks are wonderful with the big sweaters. We always have to balance if there's big on the bottom, big menswear look pants, and we want a more thin uh, profile on top. If we have a very narrow pant on the bottom, then we can do the big, heavy sweaters on top. So we have to consider the balance there. And then number nine are plaids, the kind of plaids we wore in grade school. Everything is in plaids. And, uh, of course, that's, you know, seeing a lot of that in menswear, but we're actually seeing it in dresses, tops, blouses, jackets, shoes even, and handbags. And, Mike, this is a great way for our listeners to be current. And one of the tricks of the trade, which they've heard me mention over the years, is for these kind of trends that we want to incorporate, buy a little piece, buy a uh, inexpensive handbag or buy a uh, inexpensive pair of shoes or maybe a top, a sweater or a uh, t-shirt in the plaid. And then, you know, if it doesn't go past the next year, it's not a classic. It's not one of our uh, investment pieces. And finally, Mike, we're just going to wrap up with accessories. And I put this down as number 10, but a quick look at our accessories. We're seeing wide adorned belts, and they're a little tricky to wear because one does need more of an hourglass figure, but they are showing a lot of them uh, that you would wear over a blouse, wear over a sweater even, wear over a dress, not a part of the dress or the sweater, but um, over it, and with narrow uh, pants, of course, or uh, bottoms. Accessories are dark Opaque hose is very big. This is a real nice alternative to the leggings. And uh, textured hose as well, patterned hose. In handbags, as I said, we're even seeing those sweater knit handbags, but we're seeing big oversized handbags. And patent leather is big. We're seeing that as kind of a fun, fashion-forward new take uh, for accessories, and that is in boots and handbags as well, and shoes certainly. And in our shoe profile, one of the biggest looks is what I'm calling booties, and that's what they're known as in the industry, but those are essentially just ankle-length boots, and those can either be lace-up, high heel, chunky heel, flats, or slip-on. And shoes in general are having uh, thicker heels, which, yay, uh, from my perspective, because they're easier to walk in. And also you're seeing a lot of platform soles, and that means an exaggerated sole. Um, That, of course, usually is with a pretty high, thick heel. Hairstyles are long and sleek with center parts. Ponytails are big. It's not a lot of the... You know, as I said earlier, not less of the foofiness, so we're not doing a lot of curls and a lot of uh, updos. It's pretty sleek. Big look, which we can all incorporate, because not everybody can suddenly get long hair, is wide headbands. And these are about three to four inches wide, worn right at the scalp line, and that's a real big look in black fabric. You can even have uh, someone sew them up. They're very, very, very big right now, and they're a very elegant, modern look. And finally... In jewelry, this season, it's gold tone. So, Mike, that pretty much wraps up our look at women's fashion trends for fall and winter 2006. Join Lynn next month for the men's fall fashion segment. For current national legislative information, check out the ACB Washington Connection. 
Find it online at www.acb.org or toll free at 800-424-8666. You're listening to ACB Reports. Six years after election reform became a hot legislative topic, many state and local governments are still struggling with the issues surrounding accessible voting. In the first part of this two-part series, we'll hear from Artis Bazin of California and Paul Edwards of Florida about how their states are handling this timely subject. The segment is introduced by Day Al Mohammed, the Director of Advocacy and Government Affairs for the American Council of the Blind. Now, one of the things, if you've ever heard me speak, that I talk a lot about is that Congress listens to three things. One is money, two is media attention, and the third is numbers, as in voting numbers. You need to care about voting because it makes it a lot easier to get your message across to Congress. When I can say, there are this many people who are not going to vote for you unless you support these issues. One of the things that we've worked on at the federal level was some of the standards for the voting machine systems. However, one of the things I also said at this last year's seminar is that at this point in time, voting issues are going state by state because states have enacted their own laws. And so one of the things I wanted to have here is a panel made up of some different states that are having some pretty dramatic changes in the way voting is done and some of the battles they're having that way affiliates as well as members can see this is what's going on, this is how we're combating it, and this is how we can trade information to make this work better. So um, we have representatives from California, which has been in some long-term discussions with the Secretary of State on voting issues. New York, which I've heard has gotten very contentious with regard to the issues. Maryland, which in, in the past... The state of Maryland said, you know what, we're doing a great job for people who are blind and visually impaired. And so now the question is, well, is that true? And then, of course, uh, you know, I'd be remiss if we did not include our host state, Florida. So I think what I would probably like to start with would be California, since they've been at it the longest, uh, and ask Artis Bazin if she'd be willing to uh, tell us what's going on there. I was asked by the Secretary of State, Shelley, to serve on the first advisory board to set up the regulations and do the state plan for the state of California three years ago. When I was on that advisory committee, of course, I pushed accessibility all the way. Unfortunately, Secretary of State Shelley was not as open to accessibility. I mean, he kept saying he was, but all of his decisions weren't necessarily in our best interest. However, the state plan did have a lot of accessibility uh, things in it, and they did provide for an accessibility committee, of which I was appointed to that ongoing accessibility committee once the state plan was implemented. After that time, we've done more and more work with accessibility in the voting area since then, and it's gotten much, much better. In fact, they've even enacted laws in California that they have to have accessible voting machines, accessible everything in the voting area. But they also passed a law in California that you have to have a paper ballot that people can read after they've voted to make sure that what they want is passed. Well, that has made it extremely hard to make everything accessible. So we've been having ongoing efforts by the Accessibility Committee to make sure that things are accessible. What has happened is each county is allowed to choose its own voting machine. And the downside of that is that you have to deal with accessibility committees throughout the whole state of California. 
And uh, even though the statewide committee on accessibility has said that we'd like each county to do certain standards, it's up to those counties to follow them. And if those counties do not have an accessibility committee that's working with their county administration, then things don't necessarily get done. Some of the counties have been really good about working with our community on accessibility, and some counties have not. We had several counties that did not have accessible systems in our primary in June. In fact, there's a lawsuit by some people with disabilities in those counties because of the fact there were not accessible machines. The other thing that has happened is that not all machines are accessible to all people with disabilities. We have um, some machines, for example, the Diebolt touchscreen was very accessible to all people with disabilities until it required us to have the paper verification. And at that point in time, it was not accessible any longer to totally blind persons. The verification was not accessible because it's put on a roll afterwards and all they do is read through the ballot again of what you've done on the screen so it's not read off the paper. The Automark system has been really good for people who are blind because you can put your ballot back in and it'll read it back off to you. But for other people with disabilities, there's been some issues with them being able to pull the ballot out, put it into a privacy sleeve. And even though it does it partially automatically, it doesn't do it fully automatically. And it's been difficult for some other people with disabilities to be able to use uh, that machine. They've tried to put in a vote pad system in some counties, and so far it has not been certified. And our accessibility committee is working hard to not let it get certified because if you're a very adept blind person, you probably could handle it. But unfortunately for newly blinded people or anybody with dexterity issues, you have to count the holes over and mark it. And then the only way to verify it is to use a sensor to see if you can find where you marked. It's very uh, limiting. I mean, you really have to be good with your tactical skills in order to be able to use that system effectively. Another thing we've been working on is the procedures and getting materials accessible to all people. Continually, we get complaints from people who don't get it on cassette tape, who don't know where they can get the materials on cassette tape. And even though there are links on the Secretary of State's website, there are numbers to call, not every person is always aware of those. And so that's an ongoing effort. Another thing we find constantly is at the poll sites, there is never enough training for disability awareness. No matter what kind of training there is, it seems like we get constant complaints from people that they're not being assisted properly or they're told that they can't be helped or that poll workers just are not getting enough training. So we're also stressing that in our state. We need a lot more work, and we need more of you to be willing to serve on your advisory councils in your counties. Of course, I'm speaking particularly to Californians, but I think that's a fact across the country, is you need to volunteer to work with your county election officials, because if we don't get enough participation from people with disability, they don't know your concerns. So you need to constantly be advocating for that. So I think what I'm going to do is try and move it towards as things get more contentious and then try to finish with where the problem was supposedly solved but might not be. So I think next in contentious line would be Florida.
Florida is sort of interesting because we kind of feature the best of times and the worst of times. And I think Day is right. We're coming to the place where at least some of our problems are being solved. But to try to give you a little bit of historical background, Florida actually, uh, in spite of all of you rude people out there who are laughing about the Chad election of 2000 and doing all those things, was among the very first state to develop and implement a plan that actually spoke to dealing with electoral issues. Florida passed its own law sooner than virtually any other law did and set deadlines that counties had to meet in terms of accessible voting machines regardless of whether funds were available through HAVA or not. And many of the counties in Florida actually did meet those deadlines. They were extended to a degree. There are four or five problems that I think it's worth highlighting in Florida to bring out some of the issues. The first thing is we got accessible voting in Florida because people with disabilities demanded it. People actually served on committees that looked at machines, that evaluated machines, that demanded that standards be set appropriately when public hearings were held, that demanded to be a part of the process once a task force was set up. And even though the first task force on voting had already essentially been adopted by the state of Florida, it was our pushiness, and a pushiness that, by the way, combined the efforts of ACB and NFB that led to the creation of a subsidiary task force on disability issues and that led to the amendment of the language of the Florida bill. So, bottom line, action helps. Number two, the only way that you get effective voting systems in counties is by actively participating in county efforts. Voting is a local issue and it doesn't happen unless there are people who are pretty closely involved. We did training through the Florida Council of the Blind on accessible voting, and we encouraged people to become involved at the county level in, in becoming active participants in the choice of machines. However, point three, sometimes it doesn't matter. In Daytona Beach, which uh, was kind of the low watermark in the state of Florida, we found ourselves in a place where in spite of probably the most active and reasonably united disability caucus in the whole state, the Volusia County folks did not meet the timelines for accessible voting and in fact had not chosen a machine and determined that they weren't going to choose a machine. It got worse. It went to court. And the initial decision was that they didn't have to. And then it went to a court of appeals, and their decision was that we didn't have to. Bad court decisions and essentially overturned at the federal level to a great extent. However, bottom line is they still had deadlines to meet both for HAVA and for Florida, which they eventually did meet with accessible machines. And now... What we can essentially say in Florida is in spite of the ups and downs and in spite of the changes, we are in a situation where we are probably one of the very few states where every single one of our 67 counties has accessible voting machines in every precinct. And that happened because we didn't wait for HAVA 
We demanded that the state legislature take a proactive approach and that they work very hard to assure that machines are accessible. An area that we sometimes ignore um, is the process of machine certification. Um, it is really crucial that people recognize that even though it seems as if uh, state certification approaches are inappropriate and are long and are holding back the process of accessible voting, the fact is that you are much more likely to end up with machines that meet all of the standards that are set to assure that everybody is happy with the machine that you select if your certification standards are pretty high as they are in Florida. And the last thing that I want to say is Florida, perhaps because of the year 2000, is also one of the hotbeds of activity for the paper ballot people. And particularly in my county, which is the county of Miami-Dade in the city of Miami, we have an extremely strong coalition for paper ballot. For those of you who are not familiar with what all of this means, in very simple terms, they're suggesting that it isn't sufficient to have voting machines that are infallible. What we need to have is the capacity to build a paper audit trail that will assure that what we end up having is the capacity to check not only with machines, but with hard copies. And their contention is that there is sufficient machine error to justify using a paper ballot as an absolute and final measure. They are gaining strength. We overcame an initial effort to absolutely replace all of the machines we had with an entirely different set of machines. And the machines we had were good touchscreen machines that cost the county $24.5 million. But we almost ended up completely replacing them. We've worked pretty closely with the paper ballot people to try to maintain dialogue and to try to say that we must build a joint activity. That activity involves two things. It involves recognizing the need for an audit but saying categorically that no matter what you do, in order to create an audit trail, you cannot, must not, and we will not allow you to sacrifice accessible private voting to get there. And if you're going to create a paper trail, then you're going to have to create a paper trail that works for us who are blind, too. So finally... Florida is essentially a state where we've made an immense amount of progress, where because of hard work of disabled people working together, a lot's been accomplished. But we're also a state that must remain constantly vigilant because we're a state where discrimination against black voters, discrimination against registering disabled voters, and a whole range of other issues are high on the list of crimes. So when we're thinking about accessible voting, we've also got to remember that voter registration is another component where there is an extreme danger of people who want less government working to ensure that people can't get registered. Thanks. Paul Edwards and Artist Bazin were recorded at the 45th Annual Convention of the American Council of the Blind in July of 2006. Next month, the Accessible Voting Series continues with New York and Maryland.
You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports. ACB Reports is copyright 2006 by the American Council of the Blind. Connecting the blind community around the world, this is ACB Radio.